All right, so uh, some fights are, are worth fighting, right? Uh, some fights that we jump into, they're completely worth fighting, and some fights that we jump into, they just aren't worth fighting at all, right? And one of the things that we can ask ourselves when we're in the middle of a fight um, to know if it's worth fighting or not is to actually ask the question, is this fight worth it? Is this fight worth fighting or not? Um, there's collateral damage that comes along with fighting with somebody. And so we ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is the collateral damage? Like, who's going to be affected by this? And is a person going to be affected? Is a relationship going to be ruined? Is a, a work relationship? Is a business? Like, what's the collateral damage if I say something or if I don't say something? What's the collateral damage if I show up or if I don't show up? We've all had those fights from time to time, right? And we're, we're in the middle of something and uh, we feel like, man, if I don't say something, if I don't do something, there's going to be this great damage that takes place. And so we have this instinct that we jump in and we say something or we do something. And then like five minutes later, like, oh, why did I say that? Oh, why did I tweet that? Oh, why did I send that email? And, and maybe it's not five minutes. Maybe it's like an hour later. Maybe it's like a day later, a week later. But sometimes there's just this feeling of like, I know I shouldn't have said that. Or I know I should just kind of stayed out of that. Wasn't the fight that I was supposed to jump in at all, right? Anybody been there with me? Like I've, I've done that time or two uh, or three or four. Um, some fights are worth fighting. Some fights just aren't worth fighting uh, at all. Sometimes we, we say something or do something and, and then maybe like, like we probably would have said it anyway maybe would have said it a little bit different, but we just kind of find ourselves like, man, if I would have just sat a little bit longer on that, if I would have spent a little more time just kind of wrestling with that with the Lord or just internally, that I, 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 might, I might have still addressed it, but I would have gone about it a little bit differently. Some fights are worth fighting, some aren't. Because some fights have collateral damage that is much more destructive than the actual fight that we were, we were trying, the actual issue that we were trying to go up against. There's collateral damage that comes with it. And so when we're choosing to fight a particular fight, we have to ask the question, is it worth it? What's at stake here if I say something or I don't say something? Like, you, you probably know this, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, and I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. We live in a culture that is obsessed with fighting with one another, right? Like, like we love to fight with one another. And, and, and if you doubt that, all you have to do, if you're on social media, just scroll your social media real quick, right? Even people that are your friends, if you say something that, that they disagree with, they're going to be quick to blast you. You're like, were we ever really friends? I don't know. And, and, and so like, just check your social media, man. There, people are fighting like crazy. I've been so disappointed in, in our culture as we've been dealing with the election, right? Anybody else just like tired of seeing what's going on? There's people fighting back and forth. It's not just in the national election, though. We've got stuff going on here in our own town. Like, people are going crazy over the school bond. Like, it's a good thing, it's a bad thing. It's a good thing, but do it later. It's a bad thing, never do it. Like, people are going crazy. And we're saying things to one another that we would never say to each other face-to-face. -face. And, I'm, and I'm watching these community boards, and I'm reading, I'm like, y'all would never walk down the street. Like, you're neighbors. You wouldn't go down the street, knock on the door, and be like, I want to punch you in the face right now. Like, like, you just wouldn't do that. We say things and do things on social media that we would never do. Like, we love to fight with one another. And I would say this, too, that in our fighting, we tend to be a pretty litigious culture. Meaning that when we fight, it doesn't just happen on social media. Sometimes we, we can find ourselves in a court of law battling with one another. There's, I'm guessing there's somebody in here right now who has been on one side or the other of some type of legal action. 
Does somebody have sued you or have you been on the suing end of something? Like it just happens in our culture. We are a very litigious culture. I did a little research this week because I was just curious. It's like, how often do we go, how, how many lawsuits are happening in our culture? You guys want to take a guess? How many lawsuits were filed this past year in the United States? Just throw out, just throw out a guess. How many? One million? Tens of millions? That, that's a way to just throw out a bunch of answers. I like that, Dwight. Uh, anybody else? <laughs> 40 million lawsuits. 40 million lawsuits this last year in the United States alone. Now, uh, like, that's gone up year to year to year, right? Guess how many lawyers we have in America right now? Too many? <laughs> somebody, somebody in the first service, after they heard the 40 million, they said 40 million law lawyers, one for each case, right? 1.3 million lawyers in, in, in the United States right now. Now, great profession, right? Trained, school... But here, just to put that in perspective, about 150 years ago, it was like 64,000 lawyers. We love to fight with one another. 40 million lawsuits. And if you were to look at the reasons why people are fighting with one another and going to court, and like, you would see like, there's some pretty significant issues. Like People are fighting over some very real things, some injustices that need to be made right, some injustices that need to be done away with. Right? There are some very real... But if you were to look at the bulk majority of these lawsuits, most of them, I'm going to say most, a large percentage of them is it, just ridiculous claims, right? These are just crazy things that are happening. Like somebody spills co hot coffee on themselves and they're like, well, that shouldn't happen. That coffee was too hot. So I'm going to sue you. And they, and this is a real suit. Somebody's dog was walking through my yard and peed a little bit too much and started making spots in my yard. And it was, it was detrimental to my health because my yard was jacked up. And so I'm going to sue you. We got kids walking through and creating paths in my yard because they're trying to get to school. I'm going to sue you. I'm not going to sue your kids, but I'm going to sue you because you let your kids walk through my yard. It's crazy what happens. There's damages that take place. People back into your mailbox and the, and the mailbox gets jacked up and the person's like, man, I shouldn't have done that. And so they fix your mailbox, but it didn't happen the way that you liked it. And so you get sued for it. And it, it, like, this is real stuff. I'm not making this stuff up here. And what we've said is that throughout this messy masterpiece series is that God planted the church in the culture that the church is planted in in order to help shape that culture. Not to be shaped by or to be formed by the culture, but to help shape and to form the culture and to, to represent Christ in that community. Not to become a representative of that, that, of that particular cultural milieu on the rest of the culture. They are to impact that culture. And if the church is going to look any different than the culture that, that we're in right now, if we're going to grow up into the masterpiece that God has called us to be, this perfect masterpiece that he's called us to be, we've got to do better than what we're seeing in our culture. We've got to do better when it comes to fighting with one another. When how we handle conflict and these personal offenses that we have with one, we've got to do better than what we're seeing right now. We can't fight with one another like the culture fights with one another. This litigious fighting against one another over anything and everything that comes away. If it's not something that I like, we just tend to, to fight over it. We, we, we can't let this stuff happen. We can't let how we fight with one another become what characterizes the church. And in fact, the church should be known by something much more than fighting with one another. There should be something much greater that characterizes the church than how we fight with one another. You guys remember what, what Jesus said in John chapter 13 about this new law that he was going to give that the church should be characterized by, that his people should be characterized by? 
Jesus, he was sitting down one evening with his disciples and he washes their feet, right? A gross job, but that's what he was doing. He's being a servant. He sits down and he washes the disciples' feet. And right after he washes their feet, they sit down at the table and they have what we know as the last supper, right? They're sitting down, they're having this, uh, this Passover meal together. And as they're sitting there, guess who's sitting at the table with them, right? All the disciples, not 11 of them, all 12 are sitting there, right? Judas too. Judas who got his feet washed by Jesus. Judas, who was going to betray Jesus. He was sitting at that table, right? And all the while, he knows what's going on. And Jesus knows what's going on. He is in this moment betraying, doing the worst thing that a friend can do to another friend. Selling them out for his own personal gain. And not just personal gain, for financial gain, right? Like he is selling them out to make some money against his friend. That is a savage move to do as a friend. Don't ever do that to your friends. Don't sell them out, right? But Jesus knows this is going on. And all the while he knows this is going on, he gives this commandment in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. And by this, all people are going to know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. So he gave a clear distinctive of what the church is supposed to be characterized by. And what's that distinctive? Yeah, love. Yeah, say it, say it, say it proud, right? Like he gave a clear distinctive. That was supposed to be, the church was supposed to be characterized by love. A clear distinctive to the disciples of how the people who filled up the family of God, how the people who would become known as the church, how they were supposed to live and what they were supposed to be known by. The central marker and indicator of the church, people who follow Jesus, what was to have such a love for one another that the watching world would see what was going on inside the church and see that there's something different going on inside of them. The love that the brothers and sisters were having within the church or to have, that the, the, the love they were to have for one another was to be so radically different that when the world saw it, they would, the only excuse that they could come up with wasn't that they were generating this and manufacturing themselves. The only excuse that the watching world could come up with is Jesus is in their midst. Jesus has done something different about that group. There's a heart transformation, not just looking good on the outside, but a heart transformation that's taken place that has impacted their love. And it's not necessarily love every once in a while, but they have the default of their life has become how they love one another. And it was to show the magnificent work of Jesus. And it's true then that the church was supposed to be characterized by love. And it's true now that the church is still supposed to be characterized by love. But unfortunately, things happen, right? It's been an issue for the church year after year, century after century, decades after decades, from church to church, from nation to nation, the church has always struggled with loving each other. Not just inside the church, but we've struggled with loving people outside of the church as well. So much so that the church sometimes can be so nasty with each other. We can engage in some of the worst fights um, amongst each other. Just think about yourself. Think about maybe some of the fights that you've had maybe on social media or with people in your family or people in our community, like in our own context, not like fighting against people across the world, like in our context where the church sometimes can be so nasty with one another, so much so that we don't look any different than the world around us. And this is the issue that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The church was litigating one another instead of loving one another. The church was litigating one another instead of loving one another, so much so that they were losing their reputation in the, in, in the community. 
That the, when the community looked at them, they didn't see anything different. It actually became a laughing stock because to some degree they knew what the church was supposed to be acting like. But when they didn't see anything different, they say, there's nothing over there that I want. Why would I want anything that you're doing? Because you're not doing anything different than we're doing over here. You're doing the exact same thing. And so when they asked themselves the question, is this worth it? The clear answer, it has to be no. It's not worth it at all because the collateral damage is that you're hurting people that, that are inside the church, but not just hurting people like damaging people inside the church, but you're damaging people outside of the church. You're losing the reputation. You're ruining the reputation in the community. And that's the issue. They're fighting the wrong fight. And they're fighting the wrong fight amongst themselves and they're losing the, the, the distinctive difference that Jesus called the church to be marked by. They're losing the distinctive of love inside the church, but also the impact of that love inside of the community. And Christ's name is being the fame and the church is being the fame. So let's look what Paul says in chapter six, starting in verse one. All right, verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try to trivial case? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong, and you defraud even your own brothers. Okay, let's put this in our context. Let's remember what's going on here at the church, right? Paul, he's gotten an update from Chloe's people. Some, somebody from Chloe's group has come and either given him a message or he's gotten a, a message from Chloe's people about the things that are going on inside the church in Corinth. Uh, the church, remember, is God's perfect design. It's his perfect masterpiece and design to impact the culture wherever the church is planted. It's a perfect design, but the church is filled up with all kinds of imperfect people. When the church is filled up with imperfect people, they have been, per they have been perfected in Christ, but still living in the flesh, right? And so we, so we, have, an imper we have imperfect people filling a perfect church or a perfect design. And Paul says, this church, it's not growing up. It's not maturing at all. He actually goes so far to say that they're babes in Christ, that they should go on towards uh, a solid food, but they can't go on to solid food because they're still, uh, they're, they're still drinking milk, uh, baby kind of stuff. And he says, you're still immature, living like people who haven't been changed at all, all the while you have been changed. He says, you're living like people who are un still under the rule and reign of the kingdom of this world. And we've talked about the kingdom of this world is ruled and reigned by the prince of this world, who's Satan, right? And so, so once you're in this camp, but when Christ comes in, he moves you out of that camp and brings you over to the camp of his son, into the kingdom of the light, into the kingdom of his son that's governed, it's ruled, and it's reigned by him. And in this place, he's given you a new heart. He's given a spirit inside of you that has completely transformed you, helping you to live a life that you could have never lived in and of yourself, in and over this world. So there's no faking over here. When you live Christ, it's because he's living inside of you, doing the work in you. And he says, you're not living as somebody who's been changed. You're not living like a transformed person, but that's who you are. You've been changed. You've trusted Christ. Your identity was completely locked up in the world, but now it's completely locked up in Christ and there's no changing that. But they're having this hard time separating themselves from this world that had such a strong grip on them. A, a lifestyle that they had for so long justified socially, politically, ethically, every culture 
Every region, every nation has a, has a particular cultural ethic or a framework or a cultural climate, a social climate, a, um, a political climate that tends to govern their way of life. And the Greco-Roman world was no different. There was, a there was a political, an ethical, a judicial climate that kind of set the tone for how people would live and, and, and what would be the norms of life. And Paul says, you're not to live by the typical norms of life. You're to live under a new rule, under a, a new reign. But it was so hard for them to get away from. And they were so accustomed to live into this previous way of life, to do anything separate from that. What was like this, uh, like it was unheard of, it was unthinkable for them. It was inappropriate and somewhat to, to, the, to the logical mind of the day, it was negligent for them to walk away and to do anything different. It, it, it was, for them, it was kind of like a cultural suicide for them to do anything different than the world was, uh, was showcasing. To live in a to try to live a different cultural climate in a cultural milieu in the mainstream of life, right? And so to go against that mainstream for them was like, well, are you a coward? Are you an idiot? Are, are you just not intellectually able to keep up with the things that are going on around? And so there was this constant fear of if I walk away from how the world does things, that I'm going to be ostracized and isolated. And, and, and so what ends up happening is you've got this brand new generation, this first generation of Christians in Corinth, that just kind of bring in this same social, political, judicial, litigious ethic and framework into the church. And what ends up happening is you've got two different philosophies that are working against one another, two different ways of living. And they don't compete or they, they, they don't, they don't uh, coincide with one another. They're actually competitive philosophies of life and it's causing havoc inside of the church. And so you, in the Greco-Roman world, you've got this culture that is extremely litigious, right? They love to sue one another. The courts were just like another way of amusement for them. Uh, the culture was like, we want to be amused. We want to be in, in, entertained. Um, it's this way of life that was somewhat debaucherous or actually uh, quite a bit debaucherous. Just entertain me, feed me, my appetite, whatever I want to do. Right? We know we've already talked about that a, a, a little bit. But the court system becomes just another way of them to feed that entertainment. And so what happens is you've got people that are fighting with one another. You've got, you got a dude over here who's fighting with another guy over here, like his donkey he loaned him out to this guy over here and, and uh, he worked the donkey too hard and the donkey ends up dying and so now they're going to court. Or you got a guy who's over here and he uh, went a little bit further in his field and plowed a little more in his field and so he ended up taking portions of his food for his family and so now they're fighting in a civil court of law, right? They're just going after one another. They can't figure it out. And so what would happen is you've got this guy who's fighting against this guy and they can't figure it out and so this guy gets an arbitrator for his side and this guy gets an arbitrator for his side and so he's pulling for him and he's pulling for him and if they can't figure that out, well then they bring in another third party who becomes like this uh, impartial judge to help render a verdict. And if they can't figure it out with an, uh, an impartial judge in the middle of them, then it becomes a jury. And so what would happen is in the small claims court kind of deal, there would be 201 citizens from uh, all over the Greco-Roman world that would be pulled in, right? And so they would go check their mailbox and they'd have a little pink card in there and say, hey, guess what? You got jury duty. And so you'd have 201 jury members who were sitting on these small claims courts trying to decide a case. And it was, if it was a much larger case where there's much more money and there's much more property that was at stake, they brought in more jurors. And so now you've got, you go from 201 to 401 jurors they're trying to figure this out. There are even scenarios where there were uh, 1,000 to 6,000 jury members deciding court cases in the, in the Greco-Roman world. Is that crazy or what? 
Can you imagine being one of 6,000 jurors sitting in a deliberation room trying to figure out who's telling the truth or not? Can, can you imagine being one of those two people who's fighting over a donkey and you're sitting there like, where's this going to land? I got 6,000 people who are out here trying to decide my, my fate. But can you, can you imagine what this would look like for the church? You got two people who are fighting out in the open air amongst one another and you've got 1,000 to 6,000 people who are seeing all their dirty laundry being aired out in front of everybody. These two people just fighting with under, but you got thousands of people who, who are rendering their verdict on this, not just in the judicial court system, but in the court of public opinion, because everybody's got an opinion. And so there's thousands of people who are making an opinion on this right here. I remember growing up and uh, I'd come home from school. Do you guys remember people's court? Anybody remember people's court? Judge Wapner? Yeah, Judge Wapner would come out. I still, I still remember the tune in my head. Dun, 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 dun. And you got Judge Wapner, he comes out clad in his black robe and he sits down, he grabs the gavel, hits the deal, and court's in session, right? And you got the plaintiff on one side and you got the defendant over the other. And usually they're fighting for like 400 bucks. Small claim stuff, right? And, and, and you sit there. You got Judge Wapner who's listening to these people, but then you've got millions of people who are watching around the world What's he going to say? What's she going to say? And everybody, not, not just a, a judicial thing happening here, but now you've got the court of public opinion. Well, I think he did it. Well, I think she did it. I think instead of $400, he ought to be asking for $1,200. And everybody's got an opinion on this. All the dirty laundry's being aired out there for everybody to see. Everybody. And now you've got Judge Judy, you've got Judge Brown, you've got a thousand different, all kinds of different judges out there with millions of people watching a plaintiff and a defendant just going neck and neck with one another, duking it out to see who's right and who's wrong. The Greco-Roman courts were like this. It was the people's court. Potentially thousands of people listening in as they floated their dirty laundry out there for everybody else to hear. And everyone's making their public social verdict on what's going on. Who's right, who's wrong. And Paul says, okay, guys, let's weigh in on this. Does this make sense to any of you? Does it make sense that we would air our dirty laundry out for all the world to see when we can handle this kind of stuff in-house? He's not knocking the judicial system at all here, right? He's not invalidating that there's, there's wisdom in a collective group of people who are making a decision with one another. He's not invalidating that. It's actually, like, he, he uh, appeals to certain courts as a citizen all the time so that he might find justice when there seems to be injustice against him. Like, what we need, we need men and women who are serving in the courts. We need men and women who love God, who have a social ethic, a moral ethic, and a biblical ethic to bring to the table to help shape the ethical doctrine and the moral doctrine of our society. We need men and women on every level of government to help situate the, the culture milieu where it's not against Christianity, but it, it, it actually begins to form and impact the culture rather than to be impacted by the culture, right? We need people on all these. So Paul, he's not invalidating the judicial system whatsoever. What he's doing is he's confronting an issue that's lying under the surface in the church in Corinth that's detrimental to the church's growth, to the spiritual health and development, but it's destroying the witness in the community. It's destroying the name of Jesus in the community. And he's not taking this lightly. Here's what he says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he, gear, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? What Paul's saying here is, why air out your dirty laundry? 
Why air it out there for all the pagan courts and everybody else to see? The things that you're fighting over, you should be able to handle these things in-house. You're not helping yourself. You're hurting yourself. And you're violating the law of love that Jesus gave in John 13. You're not loving each other, and you're definitely not loving the community. You're not pointing people to Jesus by how you're living your life. You're still living attached to this old system when I've called you and I've brought you over here into this new system to be governed differently. You should be able to handle these issues in-house with brothers and sisters to help walk through this stuff with you. And if you can't figure this out amongst yourselves, bring in some others to help figure this out. Bring in a brother or sister in Christ to help work through this. So he says in verse two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try civil cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels, how much more than matters pertaining to this life. And I'm not going to lie, like this is a difficult passage. Like these two verses are, are packed right here. And I don't think we're going to know the full extent of how this plays out until we're actually living this out in the millennium. There's, there's, a, there's a time that's going to come when Jesus sits on the throne. There's a millennial kingdom that's going to be taking place and he's going to be ruling over that. And scripture says that we're going to be right beside of him, that we're going to be ruling and reigning with him within his millennial kingdom. And I don't understand how that works out. But what Paul says is that, don't you know that you're going to judge angels, that you are going to judge an unbelieving world within that millennial reign. And again, I don't understand how that works out. And, and that's not what Paul's trying to say. What he's trying to say here is that the, what you should understand, <coughs> what you should understand is, is that God has given you the ability to judge. He's given you the ability and the capacity to work things out and to discern what's going on around you. And one day you're going to see that capacity fully lived out as you rule and reign with Christ in eternity. So why not start applying that reality and wisdom now? Why not start living in that space now? You should be able to work this stuff out and work out these issues in the church without bringing it to a secular court. And so he says again in verse four, just to be clear. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. So if you have such cases, not COVID, I've already been tested, okay? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing? And I just wanted to give you a little security there. Uh, verse five, I, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. He's, he's saying, guys, please tell me, isn't there anyone among you wise enough who could help? Sorry, guys. <coughs> I saw this coming. That's why this is up here. My throat was a little scratchy this morning. <coughs> He's saying, isn't there anyone among you wise enough to help? I mean, just, just a few verses ago, just a short time ago, you were boasting of your wisdom. You were boasting, and you were saying, man, <coughs> Oh, man. Sorry, guys. Still there. Hold on. Babe, would you get me a cough drop? Oh, okay, babe, thank you. Three. Three of them. Give them a round of applause, guys. All right. Sorry for the noise that's going to be going around up here. All right, so 
It says, isn't there anyone amongst you who, who can help? Again, like, you were boasting of your wisdom. Remember, like, chapters 3, chapter 4, like, you were boasting of how smart you were. Boasting that your wisdom was greater than God's wisdom. He said you were pretty smart. And so isn't there anyone around you who can help arbitrate and point people back to the law of love? Where, where, where this issue is between you, is there not anybody who can help walk through this with you? Do you see what you're doing? He says you're fighting the wrong fight. You're choosing to fight against each other and you're not realizing the collateral damage that's taking place. Think about what's at stake here. When you're fighting against one another and you can't figure this stuff out, you invite a non-believer into the picture, into to help settle issues that should be being governed by what's going on inside the church. You should be working this out on your own. And then what happens is the church begins to lose its reputation in the community. Instead of impacting the culture, the church then blends in and it looks like it's no different than the world around it. And so it says the church is supposed to be showing the community and the culture that unity is possible. It's, <coughs> it's supposed to be showing that there's a difference in the community. The church is supposed to be impacting the culture spiritually, ethically, socially, politically. Is there supposed to be equitable justice that's taking place? They're supposed to be looking at your life and having hope that things could be different. So you're looking at your life and seeing that there's a, a chance for unity, that there's a chance for peace, there's a chance for love and a chance for justice, true relationships and, and, and what real family looks like, but they're not seeing it, they're not living, they're not seeing it being lived out anything differently. And when you look at it, <coughs> when you look at it, you, sh you should be seeing that there's racial divisions being solved. There should be ethnic divisions being solved. Petty fighting in the church should be being solved. Pride and arrogance should be being solved. Why? Because of what he's already been saying. Because the cross of Christ has made it possible. He's made unity possible. He's made love possible. And when they look at you, they should be seeing that there is a person who's been redeemed by God, a group of people who have been redeemed by God, brought into his family, made perfect in Christ, learning to live out of these values of hope and this new kingdom, not like the old kingdom. They should see something different. Not people fighting against one another, but people fighting for one another. But they're not. When they look at you, they're seeing these petty fights out in the public being aired out for thousands of people to go back and to make their own social verdict on. Fighting back and forth with one another. You've got Joe and you've got Larry out here in people's court fighting over $400. That should not be the case. He says you're litigating one another and, and you're losing your love for each other and you're losing your reputation in the community. So what he's saying very strongly is figure this out. Stop airing your dirty laundry out for everybody else to see. And so he's got a solution for us. It's not a solution that we particularly like. It's not a solution that the church has ever really liked or anybody ever likes, but he has a solution uh, for us. And it's no different really than what Jesus or what God has given throughout the Old Testament. And, and it's really, it's kind of like a, a law of love, right? Remember in the Old Testament where um, God says, man, if, if you borrow from another brother, like if you take kind of like a, a, a loan out from another brother, like in somebody co-signs, uh, ho hold out a, uh, hold their cloak until they can repay you. But here's the caveat that he gave. This is a law of love at work. If they come to you and it's cold at night, give them their cloak back so that they can sleep. Don't, don't be rude. Don't be saying, no, you owe me. I'm right. Like until you pay me, you don't get your coat back. He's like, no, you give them their coat, let them go sleep. In the morning, they can bring it back to you. Don't hold it out. It's the law of love at work. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if someone strikes you on the cheek as a personal offense, right? Somebody hits you in the cheek, somebody blasts you. What you do is you give them the other cheek as well. 
Yikes, no, we don't want to do that, do we? Right after that, he says, if someone takes your shirt, offer them your coat as well. What? Don't do that. that. That doesn't work in American society. If someone tells you to carry their bag a mile, carry it another mile. You go the extra mile. What Jesus was saying is that you're not going to be known for being right. You're not going to be known for winning an argument. You're not going to be known for me. If you're, like, if you're somebody who's like, man, i got to be right all the time, and I'm going to fight and fight and fight in order to be right, hear what Jesus says and hear what Paul says. You don't have to fight. Like, these, these, you gotta, you got to fight the right fight. You're not going to be, no, be known for being right or for winning the fight in court. What you're going to be known for or what you should be known for is extending grace and extending love to one another. Jesus said, by this all people are going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And to us, man, this, this just doesn't make sense. We, we, we read stuff like that and we think, like, that's so passive. I'm not a pacifist. I got my guns. I'm going to fight. If somebody blasts me in the cheek, man, I'm going to blast them back. That's how we do it. We love to fight, right? And so the person is saying, I'm not living a passive lifestyle. Listen, that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Paul is saying here in verse 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He's saying the very idea that you're suing one another, you've already lost You've already lost because you're not living in love with each other and you're not loving the community very well. And this is what he says. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer not being right? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves, he says, wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. And we don't like to hear this. We hate hearing this. It goes against the culture that loves to fight with one another. To, to take one on the chin? Yeah, right. That, that's not happening. To let one go? No, that's not happening to us. But that's what, Paul, that's what Paul was saying. That's what Jesus was saying. And he's not saying live a passive lifestyle. He's saying choose to fight the right fights. It's not about passivity. It's about choosing to fight the right fights. Why not fight the right fight? Know what fight you're actually fighting. Some fights are worth fighting and some fights aren't worth fighting. The collateral damage that takes place when we tend to fight the wrong fight within the church amongst each other is that we lose our reputation in the community. You lose your reputation to the person you've been sharing Christ with. When they see you blasting somebody else on Facebook or on Twitter or on social media, when we take our opinions to the public court, we take it to the people's court, we lose our reputation. The church loses its reputation. Jesus, is, loses, Jesus loses his reputation amongst our community or, or through your testimony. See, we don't fight like the world. We fight differently. Why not rather be wronged, he says. The collateral damage is to the health of the church and to the reputation of the church in the community. So how do we handle this? Like, like really, like we've got real issues, right? There are things that like we have real issues. Like I'd love to take somebody to court or I'd love to get this thing worked out. There's just things going on. So how do we handle this? Well, Paul says, why not take one on the chin? But there are some real practical things on, on, on some of these things. I would say, here's what we do. You ask yourself the question. If I choose to fight this fight, what's the collateral damage? If I fight this out in the, in the open air, is it going to promote the gospel? Right? And sometimes it will. Most of the time it won't. If I fight this out in the open air, is it going to promote the gospel or is it going to hinder the reputation of Christ? Is it going to hinder my reputation and ability to witness to somebody or to share my testimony with somebody? Is it going to hurt this church? And if the, if the answer reveals that it won't promote the gospel, then we have to ask ourselves a follow-up question, right? Then why am I doing it? If it's not going to promote Jesus, then why am I having this fight? Are my feelings hurt? 
Am I mad? Has, has sin happened against me? Uh, is there an injustice? And I'll, and I'll say this, if there's a grievous sin that's happened against you, right? The, 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 the church has never been called to be a criminal court of law. Like that's, that's not our job. If there's a grievous sin that's happened to you, the law needs to be involved. The court system needs to be involved. We handle issues inside the house of things that we can handle. But if it's a criminal, egregious sin, that, that goes to the law. So if that's happened, that goes there. But if this is something personal, if there's something that has rubbed you the wrong way and in, 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 in how we handle it, then I, I say there's, there, there's a three-level test that we can have. And this is, uh, this is literally how I run things through my own life. Right, the first, the first level is level one, it's low deal. Is this really a big deal, right? Is this thing, is it really a big deal? Or did I just get my feelings hurt? Like somebody, somebody said something I didn't like, is against an opinion, but there was really no sin that happened here. And so this is a me thing, it's not a them thing, it's just how I perceived it. So I have to, is this really a big deal for me? And if I determine that it's not a big deal, and then I just have to suck it up, right? My, my wife said when we first got married, um, Earlier on there, I'd get bent out of shape about some stuff, and she would say, hey, suck it up, cupcake. And I'd be like, oh, I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. But in this level, level one stuff, there's some things I just got to suck it up. I just, I just have to because it's a me thing. It's not, it's not a you thing. It's not an anybody else thing. But if it is a big deal, okay, if, if there's an issue against a brother or sister, then we go to level two. If there's something that's not just a me thing, like we got to have a conversation, it, it gets a little awkward in that space. But I think there's health that comes here for the individual and there's health that comes to the church. It's Matthew 18 being played out. It's what Tony talked about last week. It's the, the Matthew 18 principle of addressing a brother in sin or addressing a brother who's offended you. Jesus told us if we see, um, uh, if, if we go to take our gift to the altar and realize that we've got uh, something uh, grievous against somebody else, then we lay down our gift and we go make amends, right? That, that, and this is the Matthew 18 principle being worked out in our lives. And I'm going to say that none of these conversations that we have with people, like, they're, they're not easy. Like, they're awkward conversations. Nobody, nobody really likes to, like, there's some people who like to confront one another. But in the grand scheme of things, when you're trying to re keep relationship with others, these are hard conversations. But I think when we have them, every time that I've had them, and I've had quite a few, that these are moments to grow, where my humility gets to kick in and bring down my pride level, but it also begins to grow me up as a believer in Christ. And when we grow in these conversations, I think the other person grows as well, and then the church becomes healthy. The individual becomes healthy, and the church begins to come healthy. Uh, as well, or healthier. And so we have those conversations. But if it's, if it's an issue where you don't feel like, or you're, it's, you're not getting anywhere between person to person, then we go to level three. Can I, can I, I can't personally work this out. Who can we bring into the picture? Who, who else can come in? And this is what Paul's talking about. Bringing in an arbitrator, bringing in a third party to help work through some things, right? A brother or sister in Christ. Can, can they help? Can they, can, not somebody who's just on my side or just on their side, but somebody who can actually help us come to a resolution. And, and if you can't find a brother or sister in Christ to help walk through this that you can both agree on, then we've got elders in the church that um, have the wisdom of God. They've been play, put in their place. They may not know every situation, but we have the ability to walk through as brothers and sisters in Christ with, with wisdom to help like work through some difficult situations, okay? So that's a, an opportunity uh, as well. I, I, a few years ago, uh, I sat down with my mentor who is a, um, he's a certified peacemaker uh, in churches. 
And uh, he goes in where there's situations where people are fighting with one another and to keep it out of the court where it's a civil kind of a deal, he goes in and he has conversations with people to help them work through. And I sat in uh, one day and there was this, uh, this gal who owned a construction business and she did, I'm pretty sure she did great work. And there was a guy who had had some work done by her business inside the church. Now listen to this. They were on the same ministry team. Every single Sunday, they worked together. They served side by side. But they were fighting with one another about this work that this, this company did on the house. And he said, you didn't do the work the way that I wanted you to do the work. And so I'm not paying you. And every Sunday, they had to look at each other serving with each other and holding this grudge towards one another. And so they sat down with my mentor and they worked through this, like, and they, they worked through the issue and they got to a resolution. He arbitrated for them and it worked out really well. Now listen to me. It's not always easy, but this stuff works. God's way of handling conflict works and it's different. It should look different. It should be different than what the world is saying. And that's what Paul is pointing at. When this kind of stuff happens, the issues that we deal with in love can get handled, and the church doesn't lose its reputation. We actually grow healthy together. And so sometimes this takes us being willing to lose the ability to be right, to do what Paul says here in verses 8 and 9. Why not just rather be wronged? I want you to think about something. What fights are you fighting right now? Who are you fighting with? Does a person even know that you're fighting with them? Because if that battle is just going on in your mind and you're fighting with that person, but they don't even know. Satan does all kinds of work in our minds when we're fighting against people and they don't even know we're fighting against them. Right? He loves that space. Does that person even know that you're fighting against them? You just sit down with that person and, and have a conversation. What are the fights that you're having? Are they the right fights? Are the fights worth it? I'm going to ask him, like, where are you having those fights? Are you having that fight with a person? Or are you throwing it out there on social media for all the public world to see? Are we having people's court on social media? Like, well, we, we live in a litigious culture, but most of the time, we're not throwing lawsuits against one another in our church, right? But it doesn't mean that we're not fighting with one another. And it doesn't mean that we can't lose our reputation in the community by simply making a click. Oh, it's just my opinion, or it's just my thought. But when we start lambasting one another and fighting against one another, what's that do to our reputation? Where are you having those fights? Are they happening? Are they worth it? And when you think about the idea of Paul saying, take it on the chin. Why not rather be wronged? What's that do to your gut? <laughs> how, how do you process that? Are there, the fight that you're in or the fights that you get in, do you ever just come to the conclusion like, why not just rather be wronged in this space so that the reputation of Christ isn't ruined and so that I don't lose my opportunity to share the gospel in these spaces? This may not even be on your radar. Some of, some of you may not have even come to Christ yet, but I want you to know that Christ has settled the law on your behalf. Christ has brought, like he's taken everything that should have been due you. And he took that all on himself. And so if you've never even trusted Christ, I, I, I want you to, to, to hear what Paul says here. Like, take it on the chin. Jesus took it on the chin for you. Why not rather be wronged? He took our sin. And so if you haven't even taken a relationship seriously yet with Jesus, may, maybe today's the day where you just say, you know what, this is my time. This is my, I'm going to use this petty fighting stuff that's going on in 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm going to use this as Jesus calling me into a real relationship with him. I'm going I'm to let him take it on the chin for me. I'm going to walk into a relationship with him. And if you've just been fighting fights as a believer in Christ and you've been wrecking the reputation of Jesus, I want to ask you to start fighting the right fight. 
Don't, don't lose a reputation. Pray, why don't you pray with me? Jesus, you're so good. Thanks for our time together this morning. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the example of a messy church so we know what to stay away from. And you've given us uh, some concrete ways, I think, in your word to help avoid this stuff. It's not, it's not normal for us just to take things on the chin. And there's some things that we can really fight for and that we should be fighting for. But there's some things, Lord, that we just got to let go so that we don't defame you, but we actually show that there's unity that can happen. There's love that can take place inside of disagreements. And so where there's fighting in our church, God, I pray that you would squash it. Where there's fighting internally with people who are just having these fights in their minds, I pray that you would just squash those. And we begin to see what Paul says. Fight the right fight. Keep the reputation of Jesus. Let him fight those battles. Father, do a work in us that only you can do, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.